Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Welcome to Inside the Vatican. I'm your host, Colleen Dully. Last week, bishops, priests, religious, and laypeople from across the Catholic Church in Latin America and the Caribbean came together for a first-of-its-kind meeting on synodality. Papal biographer Austin Ivory covered and participated in the meeting in Mexico City. He joins me this week to talk about the meeting and the tone it set for the global synodal process. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning, Austin. Good morning. Uh, Thanks for joining us fresh off of your trip. So last week on Inside the Vatican, uh, we covered the U.S. Bishop's November meeting. And this Ecclesial Assembly Mexico City meeting was a meeting of bishops, but it was a different kind of meeting than the one that the U.S. Bishops just had. So could you tell me to start out, what exactly is an Ecclesial Assembly? Maybe how is it different from a meeting of a bishop's conference? Yeah, Colleen, it was it was really was a one of its kind meeting. Um, and the first thing to understand about it was that it was a meeting of the church of the entire continent of Latin America. Now, we're used to having in Latin America these big things called general conferences, which are, happen you know, every 10, 15, 20 years sometimes, which are big meetings of the bishops from all over the continent. This was an assembly of the people of God from across the continent who had gathered together following an unprecedented consultation of the people of God, which took place over a number of months. So this really is one of a kind. And why is it called an assembly and not a synod? Well, because it's broader than a synod of bishops. Um, and it also doesn't have the same kind of binding character to it. But this was really the result of CELAM, which is the, the, the Council of Episcopal Conferences of Latin America, wanting to do something. They originally wanted a new general conference. The last one was 2007 in Aparecida, Brazil. Pope said, no, we still have to, we still have to implement Aparecida. So it was actually the Pope's suggestion that this be a meeting of the people of God. So that's what it was. So Austin, you were at this meeting, you were participating in this meeting. Can you kind of set the scene? What, what was it like? Well, the building where we met was called Casa Lago, which is just outside Mexico City, an enormous retreat house, 300 rooms, uh, which the Mexican bishops use for their big plenary meetings. It was kind of in the middle of this religious compound. So in a strange way, even though we were talking about the church that goes out, we were rather trapped inside. Um, Partly also very strict on COVID. We weren't allowed to sort of come and go too much. But yeah, so that was the thing. So we met each day in, there's a big order, big round auditorium. So the 120 assembly members who were present uh, met physically there and, and we connected by with a huge screen. We then connected to people joining us uh, through Zoom. So there were another about 900 assembly members who joined by Zoom. And then a lot of the sessions, because a lot of the sessions were just, you know, were speeches, they were open to anybody. So in fact, there was a, uh, there were actually many, many people, many thousands of people who were looking at the big events each day, the big speeches and so on, on YouTube. Um, so, you know, many, many people were involved in that way, but actually the assembly members were about a thousand and then a tenth of them were there. And that was partly because of COVID and partly because of cost. Um, 
that's how they decided to do it. And maybe could you speak to what the energy was like? There was there was a great atmosphere. Uh, and I think, you know, it's one thing the Latin American church just does so well is communion, you know, alegria, joy, just the, yeah. You know, and they had a great theme music. They had a, they had a very catchy song composed by this Ecuadorian singer, which we were all ending up, you know, dancing to, to uh, towards the end, which was very funny <laughs> to see some of the European cardinals dancing. Clapping along, we had we had lovely liturgies each day. Um, usually a cardinal preaching. We had one one day we had a mariachi mass, so we actually had this very large, all one family group of mariachis came and did all the liturgical music with the you know, which was great. Uh, and yeah. then they came and serenaded us, serenaded us over supper. So some lovely. It was actually, but I mean, it makes it sound like it was pure fiesta, but actually it was quite tough in other ways because you know we we had breakfast at six thirty in the morning. Dinner was at 8.30. They were very long days. And we spent hours sitting down in the auditorium, uh, listening to speeches and then and then as part of our small groups. So it was pretty intense, actually, and quite wearing. But there mm-hmm. was this great atmosphere. And I think, you know, uh, that people, partly it was also the relief after COVID of just being together. There was a lot of, I think there was a lot about just being together as well as a Latin American church that really uh, struck people. Yeah, for sure. I saw that it was also being called a, a new synodal organism, and I wasn't sure what to make of that. Well, it was it was definitely a synodal meeting, and to underscore that, we had the presence uh, of Cardinal Mario Grec, who's the General Secretary of the Synod of Bishops uh, in Rome. And we also had with us Cardinal Jean-Claude Hollerich, who is the General Relator of the Synod on Synodality. And of course, we had various other dignitaries from across the world who had all come to say, well, you know, can we do, is this a model for us? Um, and of course, in the, the Pope's own message at the beginning to the assembly, it was made clear, you know, this is very much in keeping with, uh, in continuity with the global synod. So even though this was planned, of course, before the announcement of the synod on synodality, I, my sense was being there that, you know, there was a huge interest in this because it's the kind of thing that can be brought into this this wider synodal conversion that the church is now being called to undergo. Yeah, and I'd love to talk to you more about that in the second half of our show. I guess my question about the new synodal organism was, is this a body that's going to meet again? Is it going to become some sort of standing thing or was it a one-time deal? Well, I, I think everybody was, was at pains to stress that this is you know, the first Baby step mm-hmm. of you know of a whole of a whole journey into you know, a, a, a synodality. So this is a new model. Uh, this has not been done um, anywhere else in the world. We've had synods of bishops, and of course now with the global synod, we have consultations of the people of God, where the people of God are being brought into the process. But this is actually a consultation of the people of God, followed by a gathering of the people of God with their bishops. And one of the interesting things, by the way, was that they were very keen to have representatives. So we had in each group which met to consider various questions let's call them small groups although they weren't that small um 20 of them were bishops 20 percent were religious 20 percent priests and 40 percent laity so mm. th- the idea was you know you had this spread uh, uh, across across the church um so that's really it's all it's all really quite unique and of course you can do that with an assembly because an assembly doesn't have the same kind of binding uh, nature as synods uh, and so yeah so a one of a kind which could well indeed, and I suspect will become, part of the way the church works in the future. Got it. So then what was the stated goal of this specific meeting of this new body? So the idea was that the church, uh, the church, people of God would gather following a consultation of the people of God. And the consultation was very, very broad ranging. It was, you know, basically tell us how you feel, tell us what's going on, tell us what you expect of the church at this time. Very important. This was a, a lot about the church, actually. 
Um, and that process was conducted over a four months and about 70,000 responses were gathered. Now, you might say, you know, between the Rio Grande and Patagonia, 70,000 isn't a lot. And I think there's a lot, there's something to criticize there about the, 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 the speed with which it was done. But nonetheless, again, mm-hmm. it's unprecedented that that many people were consulted. Their responses were gathered into a huge, thick volume uh, where they were really very faithful to the responses. So you've got this huge range of responses. That was then reflected on prior to the assembly by the organizing committee who produced a kind of discernment document. And then the other idea was that <clears throat> the assembly members would gather in small groups and they would look at these issues and they would um, pick out some and then try and focus on a few and then come up with uh, pastoral priorities as well as a few propositions and proposals uh, uh, pastoral challenges that were urgent right now and relevant to the whole continent. Now, at the end of this process, so imagine a sausage machine, the sausage at the end of the process was what they called 12 pastoral challenges. So if there was a result of the of the assembly, it was this. But to be honest, you look at those 12 pastoral challenges and you think, well, great. You know, actually, the, you know, they're, it's a lovely list, but you also think, well, no surprises there and the church is already doing it. So I've come away, and I'll be writing about this for America, but I've come away feeling that actually the most important thing about this was the process itself rather than what it produced. Hmm. Okay, so tell me a little bit more about that then, because I was going to ask you about the pastoral priorities, because it is the kind of concrete result that we see. But what is it about this process that you think was so important? So, I mean, the beauty of the process was that people met uh, who didn't know each other. It was obviously most of the groups were in Spanish and Portuguese, a mixture of, which created some difficulties. But anyway, connecting by Zoom and basically looking at some of these pastoral challenges and getting to know each other and doing a, a kind of discernment. Now that in itself, uh, which, which then which then becomes the basis for the bishops then of Latin America to reflect on in terms of their own pastoral priorities. If you think about it, that in itself is a unique phenomenon. So in other words, that has never happened before. That the people of God have gathered to actually give their own discernment to the bishops to say, this is where we see that the church needs to pay attention. That in itself, I think, is remarkable. And you can criticize, and indeed, you know, there are plenty of things to say about this process, how, and I've mentioned a couple of them, you can also say the methodology I thought was a bit too, it was a bit too driven towards results. I think we needed more time, we needed more space, I think a week was far too short. I think there are lots of things you can say about that, that say, well, in the future, they're going to need to reflect on. But I think the fact that just that it happened in the way that it happened with such a strong participation of lay people, of religious, of women here, I think is remarkable. Could you give me an example of maybe an anecdote or a moment from the Mexico City meeting that stays with you? But I think the thing that really struck me was, was that some of the best speeches and interventions were from, for example, the head of the, the, the woman who is head of the uh, Confederation of Religious in Latin America just gave this absolute barnstormer of a speech on fraternity and synodality. We all thought, Wow. And then um, a nun from Honduras who was black gave this amazing account of, you know, the Afro presence in Latin America from the beginning. And again, people went, wow, the young people were spectacular. Again, you know, a 19-year-old girl from, from Ecuador just stood up and said, look, the young people, you know, we want to be listened to, but we also want to listen. You know, we want to participate. So I guess it was the, the way the margins woke up in this assembly. And you start to see, well, actually, synodality, we know in theory is about paying attention to the peripheries, but actually it's when you give 
a space to these voices that you start to realize yeah, that's where the prophecy is. That's where that's where the spirit is speaking to us. So I guess I would pick, uh, you know, definitely one of those one of those moments as my as my highlight. So um, what what happens next? Where where do the these Latin American bishops, Latin American church go from here now that they have these pastoral challenges laid out, now that they've had this hopefully transformative experience of meeting together and encountering one another, where do they go now? Well, I think, you know, nobody has made any great promises about about this. In other words, the idea was that we do it or they did it and then they would reflect on the next steps. In fact, on the last day, the organizing committee of CELAM, that's the Latin American Bishops Council, gave us a kind of timeline over the next year. So there's going to be meetings of bishops to reflect on the results. And by the way, the results isn't aren't just the 12 pastoral priorities. It's also the actual listening, uh, the, the, the document which gathered all the responses. There are various materials that they will be reflecting on. And then they will have mini assemblies in each region of Latin America to, to reflect on them. So um, I, I think there's going to be, you know, the idea is that this becomes then the basis for, for all sorts of uh, future uh, meetings. But at the heart of it is how do we become the church that, that the Latin American church is called to be in a Parasida and in Evangelium? How can it become more missionary? How can it, how can it, uh, how can it allow for uh, the, the energies of what we call the missionary disciples, you know, ordinary people, to wake up to their baptismal call. And of course, one of the key results, I would say, of this, and one of the things at least that was demonstrated to me, is that in order to have a missionary church, which is pastoral and everything Francis is calling us to be, you've got to be a synodal church. In other words, if you're going to ask people to assume responsibility for mission, you have to enable them to participate in the decisions that are taken. And I think that's a key thing that I think people really emphasized in this. And, you know, I was, as well as my own small group, I was watching, obviously, the, the, the bigger other discussions and the chats at the end and so on, particularly on Zoom, what was going on. And people just kept saying, this is just amazing that this has happened. Thank you for allowing us to, you know, to speak, to be involved, to participate. And, you know, of course, some criticism saying, well, you know, why, why isn't there a final document? Why wasn't it more of a more representative? You know, people, some people want, want a different kind of thing. But most people just said, this is fantastic. This is what it feels like to be actually engaged uh, as missionary disciples in the future of the church. And as we've been talking about with the global synodal process, it's it's a matter of starting processes, right? Rather than reaching some conclusive final result. Like this is not going to be a one and done <laughs> kind of situation. So after the break, we'll talk more about that, how this meeting relates to the global synodal process. And of course, we'll also talk about Pope Francis. It wouldn't be an Austin interview if we didn't talk about the Pope. So we'll be talking about Pope Francis' message to the Ecclesial Assembly. We'll talk about the legacy of Aparecida. And we'll talk about the example that the Latin American bishops have set for Pope Francis' global synodal process. Stay with us. So 
Pope Francis, of course, had his eyes on this meeting in Mexico City as the global church has just begun its own synodal process, which aims to hear the voice of everyone in the church and start a process of shifting the church towards a more synodal way of being, a synodal way of making decisions. In his speech to the Latin American meeting, the Pope spoke about the three main themes of the synodal process. He spoke about communion, participation, and mission, but then he added two more words, listening and overflow. And we've heard a little bit about overflow from Pope Francis recently. And Austin, I just wanted to pick your brain. What does the Pope mean by this? So listening and overflow. So listening because he says, you know, in an assembly, and this is true of any synodal process, it's actually about listening to the voice of God through the cry of the people. So, you know, you, you, you put your ear close to what the people are saying, the ordinary people of God. And the idea is that you hear what the Spirit, what God is saying through them. And so there's this process of listening to each other and to the people and to God all at the same time. I think that's that. So listening. And he was really emphasizing that, aware, of course, that he's addressing Latin Americans who uh, uh, you know, are famous for wanting to fill every <laughs> void with words. And there was a lot, and I have to say, there was a lot of that in this assembly. Uh, I think that's why he emphasized listening. And the other word he wanted to emphasize was desborde, the overflow. So it's a, a word that he's used a lot uh, in, the, in the past couple of years. And he's really saying that this is what marks the presence of the Spirit in any assembly. And he said, you know, I, I'm going to ask the Lord that this assembly be an expression of the creative love of you know, God's spirit, which comes out fearlessly to encounter us and which is what really gives the church its, uh, well, it's, its quality of mission uh, that makes it evangelizing. It's, this is all about the spirit. So really that's what overflow means. It's really a sign of the presence of the spirit breaking through into our reality and transcending the very narrow vision that we often have of everything. You know, the spirit gives us a much bigger picture and makes us more missionary. That's, that, that, that's what he was emphasizing in his speech. Got it. So I'm kind of getting a like early on in the spiritual exercises uh, idea here where you're there's like, I don't remember, there's a meditation early on in the exercises where you consider the Trinity, right? And them loving one another and how they have so much love that it, that it overflows, right? It just, they decide to break through into human existence and send Jesus to the world. Exactly. It is, it is in the very nature of the divine and of the Trinity that it seeks, that it overflows because it is love itself. And, and thanks for reminding me of that because, uh, the famous meditation on the Trinity, of course, you know, Saint Ignatius imagines the Trinity looking down at the earth and, and seeing suffering and loss and pain. And of course, responding with the incarnation, not with a lecture or a new moral code, but with the incarnation. Mm -hmm. and, and we were invited in, in this assembly to look upon the realities of Latin America right now with that same, the eyes of that, of, of the missionary disciple, a bit like, uh, you know, God looking down on the earth. So going to places of suffering and pain, and there was a lot in the assembly uh, about the pain that had been uh, exposed by, not just caused, but also exposed by COVID. Uh, there was a, a, a lot about violence. There was a lot about economic inequality. There was a lot, of course, about the ecological damage. So there was a lot of what we might call the ad extra stuff, which was part, again, of the process. How do we look at what's happening in Latin America now with the eyes of God? Austin, earlier in the show, you were mentioning Aparecida, right, which was this last big meeting of the Latin American and Caribbean bishops. And it was a really important point in kind of the career of then Cardinal Bergoglio as well. He was uh, helping lead this meeting, lead these conversations. And I'm curious how Aparecida related to this meeting. I know that 
you know, Pope Francis wanted the Mexico City meeting to be sort of a, a continuation or maybe like a revival of a parasita, maybe for people who are uninitiated. Could you kind of uh, summarize what the goals of a parasita were and then how this this meeting related? Yeah. So it was a stated goal of this assembly. And it was clearly what Pope Francis wanted was that this assembly would take stock of the road travelled since the great meeting of a parasita May 2007 in Brazil, when, for the first time in 25 years, the Latin American bishops came together and really carried out, I think, the biggest, most important discernment of modernity and the signs of the times that the church has done anywhere in the world, you know, over many decades. So it was an absolutely crucial Pentecost moment in the sense that the bishops arrived, you know, rather overwhelmed by all the challenges, rather divided among themselves. But two weeks later, emerged with this very, very uh, wonderful vision of what they should be doing and how they should be doing it. And they came together in a remarkable way. There were only two votes against out of, I think it was 200 and something. Uh, so kind of unity that you almost never find in a bishop's meeting. So a lot of people will say a parasita was a key moment. And a key moment, of course, as you say, uh, Jorge Mario Bergoglio was the, the current Archbishop of Buenos Aires, was, was the head of the redacting, drafting committee of that. Uh, and of course, that was the time when many bishops saw him as being kind of anointed by the Spirit and, and so on. So there was a big desire in this assembly to go back to Parasida, not to go back to the past, but to say, well, look what happened. You know, we had this wonderful vision. If I, I mean, if I'm to say, you know, to criticize the assembly, I think they didn't uh, deal enough with that question of what happened. Mm. You know, why wasn't a Parasida implemented? And what does that really mean? Well, a Parasida calls for you know, missionary pastoral conversion. It calls for the church to realize that Christianity is no longer spread through law and culture, that we have to go back to, as it were, the early church understanding, which is that we've had an experience of encounter with Christ, and that therefore everything we do as a church needs to be about facilitating that encounter, which is an experience with the mercy of Christ, because from there everything begins, and without it nothing else makes sense. That, if you like, is the key idea of a parasita, and the implication of it is that we need to be a church of missionary disciples, that's to say, of lay people, religious priests, and so on, all of us equally, all the baptized, um, you know, bearing this witness, giving this witness, and understanding that we have been transformed by the Christ event, the Christ encounter. And so I suppose the, 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 synod, the idea of a synodal church was a church in which people are active participants in the very mm -hmm. processes of the church itself is implicit in a parasita. And I think, you know, one thing I came away from from this meeting was actually, but I don't think it was spelt out particularly, but I came away pretty convinced that the reason that a parasita wasn't the game changer that I think it should have been uh, is that we weren't then a sufficiently synodal church. And I think that's what this is actually really about. This is about enabling people to wake up to their baptismal mission and responsibility through enabling their participation. So we're beginning to see in a very, very explicit way the key, the, the link between being a synodal church and being a missionary church. And that connection mm -hmm. was brought out very well by Cardinal Gretsch in his address to the assembly. So you gave this interview to Vatican News where you said that the Latin American church is a leader in synodality. But then at the same time, I'm hearing you say that like maybe their big vision for this transformative missionary church was not carried out because of a lack of synodality. And so how how do you square those things? Is it the case that just, you well, know, it didn't do uh, enough? Yeah, but that, that, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. No, it's it's it, so okay. So when when I when I said that the Ladmary Church is a leader in synodality, I'm using synodality in the very broad sense of 
um, churches which have regular gatherings in which there is active participation. And the fact that they've had these continent-wide assemblies uh, in a way that no other part of the church has uh, is in itself, to me, a sign of synodality. So that's what I what I mean by a synodal church is that they, you know they've had these big gatherings, which have been preceded also by lengthy consultations of the people of God. Mm-hmm. So, but the reason I think the the Parasita vision has not been taken up with the energy and enthusiasm which I think they hoped, uh, I mean it has been transformative, but not as much as it was hoped, is because I think the church has not yet become in Latin America or indeed anywhere as participatory as I think a missionary church demands. And I think that connection has only become clear for the Latin American church with the pontificate of Francis, with the the synods that have been in Rome, and above all the Amazonian synod, where I think the Latin Americans start to say, okay, you know what, this is all implicit in a parasite. We now need to make it explicit. We now need a different kind of, if you like, model of church or model of understanding of the way the church proceeds in order to fulfill that vision, which is in a parasita. And by the way, I think that's why Francis was absolutely right to say, look, you don't need another general conference. What you need is a synodal experience that allows you to put the parasita into practice. So as we're embarking on this global synodal process, and we're also seeing, you know, the Latin American church have this important meeting about synodality, I wonder what lessons there are for the global church from this meeting, or maybe how how applicable the, the lessons of this meeting are to the rest of the world. So I think that question was one that was being asked all week by various people who had come from abroad, including Cardinal Bo of Myanmar, who's head of the Federation of Asian Bishops Conferences. They're holding their big meeting next year, and he was wondering, should we do this, an assembly of the people of God beforehand? Cardinal Hollerich, who's uh, prefect of the, of the, sorry, head of the European Council of Bishops Conference, again, you know, should, is this the sort of thing that could happen in Europe? And I, I'm not sure how to answer those questions, because the Latin American church has a unity, a communion already, which I think is absent in Europe and elsewhere. U.S. I think is slightly different because in the U.S. There, I mean, there was a strong U.S. presence at this assembly. Uh, Seventy of the assembly participants were actually from the U.S. And of course, the Hispanic ministry in the U.S. has had the encuentro experience of, uh, you know, there've been five encuentros, as they're called, where they say, actually, we're doing what the Latin Americans are doing. And we can now help the, US, the rest of the U.S. church to embrace this. So I think the U.S. in a way has a great advantage and they have a presence within the U.S., of a church which is already familiar with this. Yeah, this is something that the nuncio said at the U.S. bishops meeting. He said that you know you have this this group that's very experienced in synodality within the U.S. church. And, and I, I think it's the only <laughs> part of the U.S. church which has that experience. And I think whereas I think in Europe, for example, we don't have it at all. And I, just the idea of all the different languages in Europe uh, and and the differences between some of the bishops' conference, you think, gosh, could could this be done? You know, I came away with a very strong question mark over that. So I think partly, yes, this was unique to Latin America, but yes, this is the way that the church is called to go elsewhere. I'm curious, uh, you know, you were recently in Rome for the opening meeting of the global synodal process, uh, and then you were also at this meeting. So you've really had kind of a, you know, front row seat to seeing some of these synodal gatherings. And I'm curious about kind of... I don't know, the, the shift you see, the the challenges that you see, you know, in in trying to make such a big shift in how the church is working because i feel like it's not so visible to you know ordinary people who are coming to mass every week or even to people who you know would really love to get involved in this process but maybe are running into difficulties on the local level i totally get that and that's why you know i've been writing about this 
recently to sort of, there's a huge gap between what I think is, this is a massively exciting moment. I've never been more excited as a Catholic in my entire life. I was, you know, three when Vatican II happened. So, you know, this is it. I think this is a huge transformational moment for the church. And, and I think I understand this partly because I guess I'm so close to Francis's own vision, but also I'm generally excited by what I, I saw in Rome, just even as a process. But there's obviously a massive gap between that and the reality on the ground, which is that people are just beginning to sort of go, well, what is this? What is a synod? How do we do this? You know, some bishops are kind of regard this as a, actually, uh, I heard in a parasita from uh, from somebody who knows the US church, I said, how, how are the American bishops, you know, going with the welcoming the global synod? And he said, well, of course, the Vatican only got in touch with them last April. By that time, they'd, ha- they'd done most of their budgets. So they regard this as an unfunded mm. mandate. So I thought <laughs> only the US church could respond yeah, to this historic true. moment by saying, sorry, it's not in the budget, you know. Um, so I think, I, I, I think, I think, there, I think there is a bit of that going on, you know, and I think, you know, even in my country yeah. too, there's a bit of, you know, where's it? So, okay. So, and that's the stage we're at. And so yeah, this is going to take time. This is going to take time for people really to begin to wake up to what this is and that it is transformative. You know, we were a synodal church in the Acts of the Apostles. It's there right at the beginning. We were a synodal church for the first thousand years, and then we lost it for all sorts of reasons. We need to recover it now. And I think people are beginning to say, well, actually, yeah, this is how the church should be. But it's because we don't have experience of it. Uh, it's very hard to grasp. So that so we need time. We need patience uh, because we're just at the very beginning. We're in the first mile of of, of, of the ascent of the, of the slope. And I think you know that's why it's, it's hard to see the summit at the moment. Mm-hmm. Well, Austin, I appreciate you uh, kind of giving us an inside view of the baby steps on this process, and uh, look forward to your upcoming article in American Magazine. Thanks, Colleen. It's been great to be with you. Real quick before we go, Pope Francis is visiting Cyprus and Greece from December 2nd through 6th, and Jerry will be traveling with him. You can follow Jerry's coverage at americamagazine.org, and you can follow Jerry on Twitter for live updates. He is at Jerry O. Rome. That's G-E-R-R-Y-O-R-O-M-E. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Ricardo Da Silva. Sound engineering by Kevin Christopher Robles. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. And if you want to support our work on the show, the best way to do that is by purchasing a digital subscription to America Magazine. You can do that at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thanks. For America Media, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dudley. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.